WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In World News Today, London nearly tripled the number of police on its streets today to try to end Britain's worst rioting in a generation, according to NPR. There has been three nights of looting and burning by poor, diverse and brazen crowds of young people. The chaos has spread to at least one more major city. And in national news, residents in six Wisconsin state Senate districts are voting today in the nation's largest group of recall elections ever. This could provide an indication of trends for the 2012 U.S presidential race, according to Reuters. Six state Senate Republicans faced recall elections in what has become a referendum on Republican Governor Scott Walker's conservative policies. And in Michigan news, Governor Rick Snyder has approved the bills that remap Michigan's legislative and congressional districts, according to Michigan Public Radio Network. The measures reflect the fact that Michigan's lost that, that Michigan lost population in the most recent U.S. Census, and therefore the state loses a con- congressional seat. Democrats are expected to challenge the maps, but party leaders say they have yet to decide exactly how they'll go about it. And on Exposure Tonight, we will be talking about what is called the Great Lakes Bioneers, as well as the Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. But right now is Laura Halu of the MSU Museum, and she's here to talk about the Great Lakes Folk Festival, which is going on Friday through Sunday this weekend. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thanks. So how many years has this festival been going on, and how has it evolved over the years? Good question. Ten years in its current format. This We're marking our 10th year of the Great Lakes Folk Festival, which happens in downtown East Lansing. Prior to that, we hosted something called the National Folk Festival, which was a traveling event that moves on to a different city every three years. So we sort of modeled our event after the National Folk Festival once it moved on. And, and 10 years later, we're still doing it. So I've, I've been to a few festivals this year in which all of them include camping. So I'm wondering, is the, is the Great Lakes Folk Festival here in East Lansing ever going to incorporate camping? Not so much camping, no, really. Um, people, you know, tend to drive in, bike in, bus in from all parts. But camping, we haven't gotten into that. Do you think that that, that would change the dynamic in, of the festival? Um, hard to say. You know, we, we do have a whole lot of programming. We've got about 21 hours worth of programming, and we do find that our visitors come and stay and stay and stay. So, um, you know, there there's definitely a lot to take in and enjoy when you come to this event. And we do know that people come, you know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for sure. Yeah, and I, I saw on your website that Sometimes you can expect up to 90,000 people. Over, Yeah, over the three days, for sure. It, it draws a big, big crowd, and uh, it pretty much takes over or transforms the core of downtown East Lansing. So we've got people, you know, spilling out on stages and program areas all over the place. Yeah, and I noticed you were talking about people are coming from all over the place. And I noticed recently with, um, you know, festivals that go on in East Lansing, whether it be the Art Festival or the Great Lakes Folk Festival, you guys are offering um, valet bike parking. <laughs> right. Talk about how that works. Sure. Well, we have a, a guarded valet lot that we have volunteers staffing the entire run of the festival, which is a really nice feature. So for local people, they can come and just drop their bike off. And then once they get to the site, it's a really walkable site. So you don't have to worry about transportation whatsoever. It's all taken care of for you. Um, so I know that Michigan has a strong folk music scene, and this right. is called the Great Lakes Folk um, 
uh, festival. So how many artists are from the state that will be showcased this year? Oh, over half a dozen. Let's see. We have about 17 in our musical roster this year. So it's it's a pretty robust lineup. Everything from Cajun to Celtic, blues, bluegrass, Tex-Mex, polka, Middle Eastern. And probably a good six or seven of those are Michiganders. And because it was our 10th year, we wanted to bring back musicians who had been here in the past. And we just kept adding and adding and adding. And in a lot of cases, we, we pulled from Michigan where we knew we had people who could come up and, and perform for us and fill in some more slots. So yeah, I noticed that there's there is a lot of genres represented That's right. in the folk festival. So how how would you define folk in the sense of the Great Lakes Folk Festival? Yeah, well, because we're the MSU Museum, we approach this, you know, sort of from a broad interpretation of traditional arts folk expression. So that type of music that comes from cultures, traditions, communities. Uh, music that's really, really steeped in a particular tradition that really is authentic, that's passed down from a, a master artist over one generation to the next and really retains, you know, sort of that pure essence of, of the way it began. Um, what is your favorite part about the festival? I love, you know, just being on the street and, and seeing just such an eclectic mix of different types of music. And then just as we do with the musical program, we also look at cultural expressions through foodways, through handmade goods, through even children's activities that are passed on and learned that way. So it's, it's an event that, that you really feel resonates with people. And how do you choose the artists that, that perform here at the Folk Festival that's going on this weekend? Well, we had a tough job this year because they're all people who've been with us before. So we had to narrow it down from about 150 artists who'd been here over the last nine years down to the 17 groups that we have here. But we work with a, a pretty good network of colleagues from around the country, whether it's from the Smithsonian, uh, whether it's from you know Nick Spitzer, who does the American Roots program down in the Louisiana area, whether it's the National Council for the Traditional Arts, which continues to produce the National Folk Festival. Festival. We get, um, you know, referrals from a lot of our colleagues or, or fellow festivals in other parts of the country. So we can kind of keep an eye on uh, who was real successful at their event and who might work well here. And we really try and get musicians um, who are uh, really steeped in a tradition and really vested in sharing that tradition with the audience. So we don't necessarily think of ourselves as concert presenters so much as we, we hope people walk away with a sense of the culture and the tradition that it comes to. Well, without further ado, uh, we have a guest on the line. This is uh, Stephen Greenman. He's a part of the, the Stephen Greenman Klesmer, uh, excuse me if I mispronounce that, that instrument name, ensemble. Uh, and he uh, is on the phone. Correct. I am correct. Klesmer? Klesmer. It's, it's a type of music, Klesmer music. Okay, yeah. and that was what I was going to ask you. So he, he'll be performing at the festival um, with his ensemble this weekend at the Great Lakes Folk Festival here in East Lansing. So, so Stephen, w explain what is a Kles Klesmer? Well, the word klezmer actually refers to a professional Jewish musician, and these were musicians that played in Eastern Europe from the late Middle Ages um, up and until the Second World War, the Holocaust, and they performed uh, almost exclusively for weddings, and they played wedding music, uh, dance music for the weddings, listening music for the weddings, artistic music to play for the table. And they had their own special profession. And now today, the music has become kind of more varied with uh, many more elements as well. And uh, it's kind of a, a world music phenomenon these days. And how did you get into playing this music? Well, I'm Jewish um, heritage-wise. Uh, and um, for me, growing up um, and going to the synagogue, I heard a lot of these old sounds um, that I was very much attracted to, um, hearing some Jewish records at home and some Yiddish records. It really brought me to the music. And um, I went to music school, but 
in the middle of going to music school, I really started to do a lot more research of the music, of klezmer music and East European gypsy folk music, and that brought me into contact with many different musicians and um, and different venues and places. And I just did, started doing a lot of traveling, and uh, it became my career. So you're you're based in Ohio. Is there is there a klezmer music scene there? Uh, yes, a pretty strong one. Um, I have my ensemble, Steve Greenman Klezmer Ensemble, and some other smaller groups that I have with. I bring in some of my colleagues from out of town that come in occasionally. But there's a band called the Yiddish Cup Klezmer Ensemble, which I used to play with years ago, led by Bert Stratton. Um, and uh, there's a the Workman's Circle Klezmer Orchestra. It's a, an adult amateur group. I lead several klezmer groups for students at two synagogues in, in Cleveland as well, um, and I'm starting another group for adults. Um, so there's a lot happening here. And, and I understand you've also recorded for the Smithsonian? Yes. Um, I had a project with Dr. Walter Zev Feldman, and we recorded some very early, did a lot of research into some very early uh, klezmer repertoire where there was the listening repertoire, the very artistic repertoire, where there's not a lot of recordings. And Zev had some connections with the Smithsonian Folkways. And um, our album, when we recorded it, uh, they they took it up. And so we're really proud of that, that CD. So how would you describe klezmer music for someone that's completely unfamiliar with it? Well, klezmer music, to me, it uh, it really embodies like all of the human feelings and emotions. On the one hand, you'll have music that's incredibly rejoicing and could be quite boisterous uh, music you can dance to and to celebrate to. There's also music that's very soulful, uh, can be quite tragic, melancholy. Other music that's quite meditative and prayerful. Um, you really kind of have something for everybody, this music that's very artistic. I was bringing it up before, which you don't hear too often. Um, the music we're going to play mainly for the festival because it's an outdoor festival is more of the, the up-tempo music for the most part. We're going to mix in um, different styles here and there. So up next, we're going to play um, the song Odessa, and please help me with the pronunciation. Is it um, Freilix? Yes, Odessa, Odessa Freilix. And can you tell us a little about the, about the song before we play it? Um, this song is a piece that I that I composed, I think, in like 2002, um, and it's on one of my recordings that I made. And it's a nice, jumpy, boisterous piece, and you can hear a lot of music like that from our ensemble at the festival. I think uh, your uh, audiences are going to really love it. Well, on the phone is Stephen Greenman. He is a part of the Stephen Greenman Klezmer Ensemble. He'll be performing at the Great Lakes Folk Festival this weekend, which is happening Friday through Sunday in our good old East Lansing. Um, and up next is the song Odessa Freilix. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. That was a little sample of what you may hear at the Great Lakes Folk Festival, which is going on this weekend, Friday through Sunday in East Lansing. 
In the studio is Laura Halu of the MSU Museum, and the MSU Museum is putting on this wonderful festival. Uh, so, Laura, I'm curious, talk about um, the different events that are going on. How many stages okay. are there going to be for performers? Well, we have three music stages that are spread throughout the city. We have one on MAC, just outside of the Marriott. We have the Albert Avenue Dance Tent, which has a 2,400-square-foot uh, dance floor. And then we have the City Hall stage, which is just up uh, Abbott near City Hall. So one of the nice things about this event is that most of the musicians play two or three or four times. So if you've missed them on a Friday, chances are you can catch them on another stage on Saturday or Sunday. And Stephen Greenman, I think we're working the heck out of him. He's going to play four times over the wow. weekend. Yeah. So I, I should mention the dance tent, which goes on there. I, I attended the Great Lakes Folk Festival last year. And what was really interesting is, is they have, you know, the tent and they have a live band there. And then there's kind of a speaker that will go through dance steps until you have, like, you know, lines of dancers doing this intricate dance. It's very simple, but it, but it becomes very elaborate. And it was a lot, a lot of fun. It's pretty impressive, isn't it, when you see someone who can take a crowd of people and get them all moving in the same direction and following directions and expressing themselves through dance, yeah. right? So we've got, yeah, New England barn dance, which is similar to a square dance or a contra dance. You know, we will do some Cajun two-stepping. We've got some Middle Eastern dance music. Uh, Stephen Greenman is even doing a, a set on the dance stage. So you'll get a real, you know, different variety of, of dance styles for sure. And can you talk about the traditional arts program? Sure. This this festival really grows out of the MSU Museum's Michigan Traditional Arts Program, and its mission is to document, preserve, and share these traditional arts expressions. And the festival is one of the biggest ways that we do that, you know, certainly in terms of a production and the number of people that come to see what we really consider in a lot of ways a living museum exhibition. And can you talk about the Grassroots Green program? Okay, sure. Well, like I said, in addition to the music, we also look at cultural expressions beyond uh, music and dance. And our curators were inspired to create this Grassroots Green program. And what they really wanted to do was, was shine a special spotlight on some of the folk wisdom that we have for living smart and sustainable ways to conserve our, our planet and revitalize you know, our, our environment. And you know, we hear a lot of times about how, how the green movement is new and there's a lot of innovation and technology, and certainly that's true, but there are a lot of people who've made, you know, kind of green living a way of life for many, many years. So these are tradition bearers, too. So we're going to have some demonstrations on, and, and sessions on everything from beekeeping and canning and making your own cosmetics, herb gardens, backyard chickens, spoon carving, broom making, darning your socks, you know, hey, even hanging your laundry out, just things that, that we can do in our, in our own neighborhoods and in our own uh, communities that can that can conserve and revitalize the planet. And what's darning your socks? Mending, mending or fixing holes in socks. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I know. I, I used to I used to uh, be a, a voice major here on campus, and I remember I, there was a song I sang about darning your socks, and I had no idea what that was. So. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a curse. It's mending. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and can you also talk about the Michigan Heritage Award? Yeah, that's another um, sweet little part of the the folk festival. And every year, the museum through the the traditional arts program wants to honor tr leading tradition bearers in our state. And we do that in music, in material culture, or, or handmade goods, and community leadership. And this year, we have um, three awards that we're bestowing. One is Calvin Cook, who's performing at our festival. He's a Detroit-based sacred steel or gospel uh, lap steel guitar player. Um, very, very talented, and we're, we're just so excited that he's going to be performing. And his wife, Grace, also sings with the group. 
So he's getting a Heritage Award. We also have a sheep shearer from the Flint area who is just a master at, at sheep shearing, and I think she's going to do some demonstrating. And then another award is a posthumous award for someone who's deceased, um, a polka band leader from the, the Downriver Detroit area. So this is a way, again, that our museum kind of documents and, and preserves these traditional arts expressions that come from traditions and communities. Well, without um, further ado, we're going to play another song that you can you can hear at the folk festival going on this weekend. Um, this is called this is a, a band called uh, Roots Vibrations. They're out of Detroit. Um, it's a it's a reggae band, and uh, this is their song called Cruise. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. We are talking about the Great Lakes Folk Festival here on Impact Exposure, which is going on this weekend. It features 17 artists from um, many different places, many different genres, including um, Chinese songs, Hawaiian, bluegrass, blues, um, reggae, as we just heard, many, many, many um, different genres, all here at the Great Lakes Folk Festival here in East Lansing. Now, Laura Hallou, um, where can people go for more information? You can find bios of all the artists' schedule. You can listen to some sound clips. Um, you can look at a map, find out transportation information, all at our website, which is greatlakesfolkfest.net. Well, Laura Hallou of the MSC Museum, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. And up next is another song you can hear at the Great Lakes Folk Festival. This is by a personal favorite band of mine. This is Detour. They are from Michigan. And this is a song called The Road That Lies Ahead. And you can hear it at the Great Lakes Folk Festival this weekend. Turn on the light Cause I know just what I'll see I'm all that's left of you and me All around this house I find Those little lies you left behind I'd be better off instead On the road that lies You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw. Check out these pics of this huge tree falling. You probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. 
name. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. You are so smoking hot. I love your elbows. Wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now. Dude, what the f***? So why would you send a text while driving? Well, that's different. That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now, it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and 200 bucks after that. Ouch. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're making out. Aw, come back, cuddle bunny. You need help. 88.9 The Impact. Now, back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. And now we are going to be talking about the Great Lakes Bioneers. And to talk about just that is Sarna Salzman. Welcome to the show, Sarna. Thank you so much. So talk about what is a bioneer? <laughs> um, a bioneer are all kinds of different people. They're bike riders. They're food eaters. They're people who make their own clothes. They're... Basically, um, bioneers is a made-up word used to describe the emerging culture of social and scientific innovators who are out there to really work with nature rather than against nature, to use um, the natural world system of collaboration and cooperation uh, rather than being fixated on competition like we are now. So um, you're, you're a bioneer. Most of your listeners are probably bioneers. Um, Come find out what it's all about. And, and what do the Great Lakes Bioneers do? Well, one of the uh, main things we do is host an annual conference, and that conference is coming up this October, 14, 15, and 16. It's always the third weekend in October. Um, and this is our 10th annual conference, um, and a really it's more than just an intellectual kind of conference. It actually feels more like a festival, uh, I've been told by many participants, than it feels like a typical kind of conference. So we uh, like to say that it's at the crossroads of ecology and social justice, and right there at that crossroads there's a lot of energy and a lot of hope um, and really a lot of good food, too. So I know at the conference, which is coming up in October, um, the topic is called Reclaiming the Commons. So what are the commons and, and why are they important? Yeah, the commons are um, the things that um, that really we all belong to and belong to all of us. And um, they're the very things that a lot of forces in the world are trying to enclose and um, privatize right now. So things that really are part of the commons are our natural resources, the air, the groundwater, our forests, um, our whole atmosphere. There's cultural resources, our languages, our media, our traditions, our beliefs, and our elders. Um, public goods like education, health, basic services in our built environment. And then there's life commons, like um, heritage breeds and seeds, uh, genome, plant genomes and animal genomes, um, and our children, really. I like to think of as part of our commons as well. And what do the Great Lakes Bioneers do when, when you're not hosting conferences? Well, um, we're busy. We're uh, canning food. We're um, organizing people. We're... Um, you know, there's a whole breadth of answers to that question. Um, as an organization, the Great, the Great Lakes Bioneers Conference is hosted by two nonprofit organizations uh, based out of Traverse City, Michigan. And so those two organizations are doing a lot in terms of convening and educating and networking. 
So I know that I think the Great Lakes Pioneers are also based in Traverse City, um, but where do many of the people from your organization come from? Are they mostly from the Traverse City area, or do they come from all over the state? Yeah, the conference has about half of its attendants historically come from northwest Michigan, and then the other half typically come from all over Michigan, and then a little smattering from elsewhere in the country. Um, so we usually get a strong presence from Lansing. Uh, Terry Link has been a great um uh, facilitator of students and faculty coming up north. The Student Organic Farm is one of our favorite partners to work with at Michigan State. So um, usually Lansing sends a pretty healthy contingent, and we'd love to continue that tradition for our 10th anniversary year. Oh, yeah, I was just going to ask how long it's been around, so 10 years. Yeah, we're really excited to say that we've been around for a decade, and we've watched a decade of change, and uh, we have a decade of experience building this uh, very vibrant network um, and connecting to other very vibrant networks, both here at home in Michigan and also um, nationally and globally, because the Great Lakes Bioneers is tied um, in partnership with a national Bioneers organization that hosts a much older conference, and we actually beam their keynote speakers live to our conference um, over that, that October weekend. So they've got some amazing speakers lined up um, from all over the world, and then we couple that with programming that's really based on our Great Lakes uh, local um, freshwater system in Michigan, and uh, together we just have a great time. So how, in the past 10 years, um, how do you believe your organization has helped improve the Great Lakes region? It's one of those things that's hard to put your finger on a, an exact measurement of, you know, well, we're responsible for the fact that it's much easier to buy local eggs these days than it used to be. Um, you know, it can't really take responsibility for that. It's more like... Um, a, a network uh, picture mushrooms growing under the forest floor uh, it's exciting when they fruit and you see mushrooms growing but the real work happens under um, under the soil where the mycelial networks are really expanding and connecting and reconnecting and, and that's what we think of our real work of the Great Lakes pioneers is to make a really rich environment for the existing social networks to connect and reconnect and connect in new and more deep ways um, than they were before so what we do is help people meet other people um, who are doing really exciting, inspiring things, and we hope that they start doing inspiring, exciting things together. And, and what are some other ways that people can network? Any other conferences that you know of that may be going on or, or different ways that people can join this, you know, kind of Great Lakes Pioneer Network? Sure. I mean, I think we're really lucky that we have so much going on. Your folk festival that's going on in Lansing um, this weekend sounds very similar kind of energy to um, what we have going on. We, you know, we're focused more on workshops and speakers and less on music, although we've got some nice music lined up for the weekend. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, I see a lot of pioneers when I go to different folk festivals in the region. Um, there's also a lot of great work happening at Michigan State. Um, like I said, Terry Link and the Student Organic Farm. I know Terry's not there anymore, but there's a lot of really great um, people doing great things in the state. I think we're lucky that uh, we live in a peninsula where it's much easier to bump into one another um, than I think it is in other states uh, here in the U.S. So, um, yeah, I think Bioneers is a great way to tap into other networks that are in existence here, whether it's music networks or food networks or social justice and immigration issue networks. Um, Bioneers is a great doorway into a whole bunch of different kinds of networks.
So what are the biggest issues you'd like to tackle in the state um, or, or see improved as a Great Lakes pioneer? I'd love to see our um, water quality improved and the way we protect it. I'd love to see the same for our air quality um, and how we manage our energy consumption. Um, you know, I'd love to see us take better care of our neighbors and our children. I think, you know, we're, we're in it really for our great, 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 great grandchildren trying to make a place that's healthy for them to thrive in. Um, so taking the long view is really important to us. Well, on the phone is Sarna Salzman. She's a part of the Great Lakes Bioneers. For more information about the Great Lakes Bioneers and the conference coming up in October, you can go to glbconference.org. Sarna, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a great show. All right, thanks. Bye. <laughs> You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that smoking? Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Munoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure on Impact 89 FM. Up next is an interview I did with MSU grad students Jeff Kloon and Heather Goldsby. They're on the show this year to talk about the Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. They were part of a study that found that species can become altruistic. I first asked them what the Beacon Center actually is. So Beacon is broadly a center that actually just received funding at Michigan State and at four other partner universities. And so what it's really designed is to study evolution, not just as this thing that has occurred in the past, but really how it's affecting us right now, both in natural systems, in artificial systems within computers, and also how can we apply it to engineering challenges. And, and how does it work? I understand it's, it's your you're looking at technology to observe evolution. How does that how does that work? When I think of that, I think of the Sims or I think of Gigapats <laughs> watching something on a computer screen evolution in action. So it can be a little bit like that at times. Um, so to be clear, only some of us are actually focused on the technological portion. Other people are studying it in natural systems like hyenas or bacteria. But for those of us who are studying it in sort of artificial life, what we really have is art is evolution occurring within a computer. 
So we have a population of digital organisms, just like organisms in the wild. They're going to compete. They're going to compete for survival based on performing different tasks. And using this, we can sort of broadly understand evolutionary principles. And, and what are you mostly trying to find when it comes to the idea of evolution? So we're really, I mean, it's a very large set of researchers. So all of us are focused on sort of different parts of the question. So a lot of people are really focused on understanding just the overall principles of evolution. So like what role does mutation rate play? Things along those lines. Another large group of us are focused on sort of understanding cooperation. So from the evolutionary perspective, as um, we're going to talk a little bit more about later, it always makes a lot of sense for your genes to be really selfish and just to be focused sort of on their own ability to survive. But we don't just see that. Like organisms ranging from ant colonies to humans actually cooperate. So there's a lot of us kind of focused on understanding questions like that as well. So Jeff, let's bring you into the conversation. And can you tell us about um, specifically your study about um, altruism in the evolution and action um, idea and the idea of, of altruism um, within different species. Sure. So as Heather was just mentioning, um, th the existence of kindness in nature is actually one of the, uh, the top evolutionary puzzles, and Darwin himself talked about this. And when he first figured out that nature basically worked via survival of the fittest, the first picture that comes to mind are all of these animals kind of in a dog-eat-dog -dog world trying to get ahead and, you know, basically being as selfish as possible. But we see a lot of acts of kindness. For example, there are bacteria that will, that will sacrifice their lives to help their relatives. And there are vampire bats that will help out a fellow vampire bat by giving them some of the blood that they foraged that night. And so uh, we wanted to study when and in what situations organisms evolve to be altruistic. And so as Heather was saying, it's one thing to study organisms that have already evolved to be altruistic and try to figure out what they're doing. But what we can actually do in this system, because generations can happen really fast inside of a computer, is we can set up different evolutionary scenarios and say, okay, altruism evolved in this set of conditions, but not in this set of conditions, and why does it evolve, when does it pop up, and what might its evolutionary benefit be? And so that's what we did in this study. We wanted to uh, investigate one of the, the, the oldest explanations for altruism, which is that while an individual bacteria or, or vampire bat looks altruistic because it's helping its relative, there are actually selfish genes at play that are causing one organism to help out another organism because the recipient might share copies of the genes. So a selfish gene is actually trying to help out copies of itself. So the old joke is that, you know, I might not give up my life for my brother, but I might give up my life for, say, three brothers, because there's a good chance that all of those brothers have copies of my genes. And so if there's a selfish gene in me, it might selfishly want to sacrifice me, Jeff, to help out three or four of my brothers, because the math works out that it will benefit a lot of its own copies. So we first wanted to test if that would work. We set up these digital uh, environments and had a whole bunch of selfish organisms that weren't helping each other. And then we gave them the ability to help each other. And it was up to them to see if they wanted to take advantage of that or not. And so these, these you know, altruistic yeah, intentions would mutate into the organisms. And those that happened to perform better uh, and survive would tend to take over the population. And what we found is that altruism did evolve according to the old theory, that the theory is right. These selfish genes do pop up, and they cause organisms to be altruistic towards their relatives. So, so let me get this straight. So we're kind of born with altruistic tendencies, um, but in the end we definitely want to help out the ones that have similar genes to us. Is that, am I getting you right? 
That is right. So that's only, I, I do want to point out that's one of many uh, types of altruism that go on. And so we were studying one of them. There are other reasons that we might be altruistic, but that is one of the oldest ones. And you're exactly correct that we have, we're kind of born with this tendency uh, to, that we're influenced by our genes to try to help out those individuals that will have copies of our genes. And those tend to be our relatives, our brothers or our children or our aunt, et cetera. And one of the interesting things that we were able to do in this study that would be impossible to do in a natural system is we said, okay, if the main reason why organisms on this planet help out their relatives is because relatives tend to have copies of, of you know, similar copies of genes, we could say, what would happen on a planet in which you could do better in terms of identifying whether or not another individual had copies of your genes than just making a bet, say, oh, my brother tends to have similar genes to me, so I'll be altruistic towards him. What if, say, you knew whether or not another individual had, like, 95% similar genes to you? And so what we did was we took, we took an entire population of organisms that were all being really nice to their relatives and not being nice to people that weren't unrelated, and then we just gave them the ability to know who in the population was really genetically similar. And what we found is all of the organisms soon evolved to stop being nice to their relatives and only be nice to those that were extremely genetically similar. So, so this is kind of an interesting study because it tells us on this planet the only reason we see altruism towards relatives is because that's kind of the best way that nature has of finding, you know, who has copies of your genes. If there was a better way, then nature would take advantage of it. And all of the stuff that we're so familiar with, being nice to your children or to your brother, all of those things could go away, and you might be nice to somebody who shares gene, you know, spot T, for example. So the idea that you help people that have similar genes to you is, in, in this study you found, is once they knew that people had similar genes, they were more willing to help, rather than the idea of like something like pheromones, which, in which you're you know, drawn to something. You're, you know, if, if pheromones worked in a similar way, you'd be drawn to help someone because you, know, you don't even know why. But in this specific study, it's because you understand that they have similar genes, rather than just being drawn to help someone because they have similar genes, if that makes any sense. So I do want to point out that these are organisms that don't have complex emotions and brains. So they're not, they're not thinking in any way. It's just whatever strategies they happen to have mutated into them that work really well tend to evolve. But um, at the base, your question uh, is an interesting one because it raises the idea that pheromones might be playing a similar role in humans in terms of you know, influencing our actions. And what they've actually found, and this isn't my work, but it's interesting work, is that uh, human females will, based on the smell of men, will preferentially pick males that have certain parts of their genome that are effectively optimal for their offspring. So there's this complex called the MHC complex, which is involved in uh, you know, wh whether or not you get infection, in basically in your immune system. And you want to have basically a shuffling of that deck, shuffling of those genes, very dissimilar genes, as much as possible. And so women are more attracted to men that have very dissimilar sections of their genome that code for that little complex. So we already have evidence that we are kind of picking out genetic information based on smell or pheromone or something like that. And so what this study basically posits is there might be other things going on that allow us to detect who else has similar genes that therefore influences our altruism. 
Well, I think it really brings up this question of what is the mechanism that we can use to identify either similar genes or dissimilar genes. So maybe you're using pheromones in one case, maybe we're using, oh, you're related to me and thus you're likely to have the same genes. Or in our study, we can also just give them perfect information to know precisely if organisms have the same genes. And so when they know that organisms have the same genes, they're more likely it's even better than kin. So kin is this rule of thumb that's like, if I have to guess, my kin are most likely to have my genes. But if I tell you this other organism is going to have the exact same genes, then that's even better. It's even more perfect knowledge. But why, why is it that, that um, organisms or humans or, or whatever it is that you guys are studying, um, that why is it that people want to protect those with similar genes? It's because that you want a part of you to stay alive, or I wonder what that motivation is. And I mentioned, and I know Jeff, you said that those that you study do not have that emotional complex. But just out of curiosity, well, I think it's actually putting the cart before the horse. I think some of your emotional motivations come from these underlying strategies that don't require the emotions. So as you mentioned. Uh, you know, as you just referred to, there are these bacteria that implement these strategy, and Heather mentioned bees, and there are all sorts of animals that don't have complex emotions that still do things like these acts of kindness because those strategies make sense. And so I actually think that a lot of the emotions that go on in, in us um, are basically getting us to act according to a lot of these evolved strategies. So it's no coincidence that eating food makes us happy and, you know, you know, hooking up, you know, and making children is a very pleasurable experience. Our emotions are basically um, drivers to implement these evolutionary strategies. So in this case, one of the strategies is be altruistic towards your, your relatives, and then we kind of, these emotions kind of help us and cause us to do those behaviors. So just for, so our listeners know that may just be tuning in, I'm talking on the phone with Jeff Clune and in the studio is Heather Goldsby, um, and they are a part of um, MSU's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution and Action, and they are a part of a study specifically to look at um, how species become altruistic. Now, Jeff, you mentioned in an MSU press release that one of the greatest things about di digital evolution is that it allows scientists to explore alternative evolutionary trajectories besides those that have already occurred on Earth. So what do you mean by that? Do you mean um, that the idea of being able to study evolution um, through a digital media, that you can explore possibilities that could have happened here on Earth, or the idea that you can explore possibilities on other planets? Well, you can actually do both. You can, evolution is a very general um, uh, process, and it could exist in a bunch of different environments. So if you wanted to say, what would happen on a world that never had water, for example? You could run a population of evolving organisms there. Or you could set up a population and say, what, if, what would happen if there was a certain planet in which you could immediately know all of the genes that, you're, you're, that another organism had? And that's one of the things that we were basically able to do in this study. And so what's nice about that is that you can have very perfect control as a scientist over your experimental conditions. So it would be hard in a natural system, for example, to have a whole bunch of organisms that were being altruistic towards only family members and then suddenly give them the ability to only be altruistic towards organisms that shared 98% of their genes. And we just don't know how to you know, give bacteria or fruit bats the ability to know the genetic sequence of other organisms. But in digital um, evolution, that's very easy. And you could do it with other traits as well. You could suddenly give organisms... Uh, you know, multiple legs or, you know, two brains or whatever, whatever it is that you want to study, you can change and then see what happens in that evolving world. 
Now, Heather, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, and again, the study is a part of um, MSU's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution and Action. Um, what else does MSU hope to explore in regards to evolution with this project? So with this project, of course, we're continuing to look very broadly at cooperation and just a variety of different systems. So, for example, I look at understanding division of labor. So why do we see groups where organisms specialize and cooperate to survive? So this could be your ant colonies where they all adopt very different roles, from the queen who's in charge of all the replication to different ants which are in charge of either guarding the colony or in charge of procuring food or tending to the brood. We all have sort of these similar patterns. Um, other areas of beacon are interested more broadly in kind of understanding evolution in the wild. So, for example, in things like hyenas and understanding evolution in bacteria. So understanding kind of how that can work. And also in then applying these to better understand um, problems that can result from evolution. So different things like evolving flu viruses. So how evolution is affecting that and how we can sort of combat it. Or how could potentially um, evolution be used to target cancer? Different things along these lines. Yeah, because I noticed um, in the MSU press release it talked about Beacon aims to solve real-world problems. So ideas of, you know, learning how, you know, about the flu virus and, and learning how to combat flu it. virus. Um, pesticides are another great example. So we have these pesticides and then we have different pests or different crops that become resistant to it. And it takes off in directions that we've never even anticipated because of evolution. So sort of understanding the process and giving us insight to then address some of these challenges. So what would you say is the ultimate goal of Beacon? Wow, Beacon has concisely, I think, un so I think the idea is that m many people think of evolution as something that has just occurred in the distant past. So now we're trying to actually show people how it can occur now. So whether it's the flu virus or whether you're looking at it in a computer or whether we're talking about it with populations in the wild or using it to come up with different solutions that are applicable for engineering products. So it really is just sort of demonstrating the power of evolution across all of this and better understanding it. I think, I think everything Heather says is right. I also think you could probably break it down more easily into two goals. But the first goal is a more of a biological one, which is to understand how evolution operates. And then the second goal is to port that knowledge over to the engineering side. So, you know, evolution built hawks and jaguars and blue whales and humans. It's probably the most impressive designer we, we know of. And what you can do is you can harness evolution to solve a lot of your problems, like diagnosing cancer or optimizing traffic flow or building artificial intelligence and evolving new digital brains. So I know um, that this, the idea, the, the study of altruism um, that you guys were involved in um, was just a part of this Beacon project. And I know, Jeff, you have now graduated and now are studying at Cornell University. That's right. Um, so is this study over then, the idea, the altruism study, or are you still continuing with it? One of the great things about science is that every time you, uh, you, know, you learn about a subject, you just, it raises more questions. So this study in particular raised a ton of questions that we're very interested in, and I'm in active collaboration with a lot of the members of Beacon. In fact, I have weekly meetings with them, and uh, we're still chasing down a lot of these questions on not only the evolution of altruism, but also how, you know, how intelligence evolved and how complex brains evolved, uh, as well as complex morphologies and bodies. So the research is ongoing not only on that question, but on many other fronts. So how long will, will Beacon um, be around for, do you guys think? 
So Beacon, the funding itself currently is running for between three and five years, but I suspect it's going to become a very integral part of MSU just on a whole continuing to the future. So we don't really envision it ever actually ending. Well, that's great. Well, uh, in the studio I have Heather Goldsby, and on the phone I have Jeff Kloon, uh, and they were on the show to talk about MSU's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution and Action, as well as their findings of how species become altruistic. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. We've just received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. The impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tapping his music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir. The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10. On- the impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And now for the Michigan Storytelling segment. This week's Michigan Storytelling segment features Tom Springer with his novel, Looking for Hickories. Welcome to the show, Tom Springer. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about this book. Well, it's a collection of essays about a place that uh, people often refer to as flyover country, which is the Midwest. And it's a place that most of us call home, but um, I don't think we really appreciate as we should. And, and where does this book take place? Is it all in Michigan? It's centered, yeah, it's centered in southern Michigan because the landscape of the Midwest is is, is sort of common to, you know, Michigan, Ohio, uh, you know, Wisconsin, Illinois. I think a lot of people from the region could see themselves or at least their, the landscape they grew up in it. And, and what inspired you to write this book? I, I've always been somebody who's enjoyed uh, reading, uh, you know, natural history essays by people like uh, Aldo Leopold, Sigurd Olson, uh, Wallace Stegner, Wendell Berry, and I think I didn't see anybody that wrote about the place that I call home, which is Southern Michigan, and uh, I really want to sort of honor the place that I grew up in and have come to appreciate and sort of be a voice that could speak to that place and uh, why it's worth protecting. Well, without further ado, would you be willing to do a reading for us? Yes. Um, I know that there's a, there's a growing interest in local food. We may talk about that later, but th- this, this uh, essay is called The New Cider House Rules, in it it really speaks to, I think, uh, why that's not only important, but sometimes also very hard to do given our current situation. To enjoy a chilled glass of fresh apple cider is one of the signature pleasures of a Michigan autumn. Since my wife's uncle Dayton owns an orchard a few miles away, we keep a supply on hand from late September to at least Thanksgiving. To extend the season, we even put several gallon jugs in the freezer. In our estimation, What makes Dayton cider so good is that it's fresh and unpasteurized. Fresh cider contains an organic cornucopia of vital nutrients and enzymes. Fresh cider has a wine-like subtlety, each blend with its own distinct flavor and aroma. By comparison, pasteurized cider, the kind sold in most stores, has a flat and waxy taste. Its muddy texture and appearance resembles the rusty fluid that leaks from old radiators. 
and it doesn't get that way by accident. Pasteurized cider has been heat treated to at least 160 degrees to kill off any potentially dangerous microorganisms. I just paraphrase for a moment here. The point that I'm trying to make is that um, people who produce pasteurized cider have really had to face a lot of increasingly stiff regulations that I think are a bit unfair and, and a little bit over the top. And uh, it stems from when 1996, when a a small girl uh, died of uh, E. coli uh, bacteria infection in uh, in Washington State, and I think you know rightly so there are some steps taking, but I think as often the case, it seems like the large scale corporate farmers benefit from that, and while some of the small local producers are are, are punished in terms of over over regulation. Uh, when it comes to food safety, there's no question that government agencies have a crucial role to play, but there's something about their logic that doesn't add up. In Michigan, for instance, there's never been a single reported death attributed to unpasteurized cider. Not one. And no matter where you live, the chances of a healthy adult getting sick from fresh cider are infinitely small. We do know, however, that heart disease is the nation's leading cause of death. It now kills some 650,000 people annually. We also know that a diet high in fresh fruits and vegetables helps deter heart disease and cancer. So for most people... The risk of not consuming enough food, such as fresh cider, far exceeds the risk of doing so. Still, I've yet to see warning labels about heart disease on the wrappers of half-pound monster burgers, nor on the boxes of cardiac-clogging pizzas that feature four meat toppings, two cheeses, two cheeses, and even more fatty cheese injected into the crust, a gluttonous practice that sounds a lot like reverse liposuction. Three miles from Dayton's Orchard, there's a big supermarket where we used to buy FDA-approved juice boxes for our children. One day, after reading the label, I decided that was no longer a good idea. What convinced me was this disclaimer. This carton may contain apple juice from the USA, Argentina, Chile, Germany, or Austria. Hmm. May contain. Not does contain or will contain, but may contain. Had the lawyers who wrote this been injected with truth serum? Perhaps they have said something like this. We, the rootless corporation that produces this product, have only the vaguest idea of where your food came from. But if bad apples poison the juice, we're reasonably confident that we can narrow down our source to three of the world's seven continents. Call me crotchety, but I'll take my chances with Dayton's fresh cider any day. I know it comes from fruit that he's planted, tended, and feeds to his own family. For me, that's assurance enough. Because a life that strives for zero risk is a lot like pasteurized cider. It has little color, even less flavor, and a bad aftertaste that makes you long for the real thing. In the studio, this is Tom Springer, and that was from his novel Looking for Hickories for the Michigan Storytelling segment. So, Tom, you also work for the Kellogg Foundation. Talk about your work there. Well, I've been the Kellogg Foundation a long time, 22 years, an amazing long time. And I've worked there in many capacities, editor, video producer, basically storyteller for the organization. I try to look at how the foundation spends its money and to help people, and then what we learn from that and how that can benefit society. And uh, it's been great work. Uh, and some of the work there that I've enjoyed most has involved um, working. Uh, you may have heard of the book uh, Nature Deficit Dis- Disorder by, by Richard Louv, and it's a whole idea that, you know, this is the first generation of kids to be disconnect- disconnected from the natural world. And we see the obesity. We see the hypertension. We see the ADHD. We see all these problems that a lot of people say is just caused because kids don't have enough free time to really explore and learn in sort of a natural setting, which is really how the human race evolved, right? We didn't, we didn't evolve and learn to be educated in classrooms. We learned to adapt to our environment and, you know, develops tools and skills based on that. So um, we've done some good work around that with urban kids. It gets them out in those settings, and it's really encouraging to see what even a little bit of nature in a kid's life can, uh, what their good results can be. 
So, I mean, would you describe yourself as an environmental activist? You know, I, 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 I guess I would call myself a conservationist. It's sort of an older term. I believe in uh, conserving what we have and protecting things that are dear to us. And I think a lot of good acti- activism can be done by setting a good example yourself. And that, I think that sort of quiet activism can be as effective in its own right. And, and what environmental issues um, would you like to see change, let's say, just in the state of Michigan? I think one of the ones that I, I think it's important to me is uh, preserving small tracts of land near urban areas. I, I volunteer with the land trust a lot, and I think I think we tend to think, you know, when it comes to preserving wild spaces, it's got to be a big park, it's got to be pristine wilderness, it's got to be in some designated beautiful place. But, you know, in so many places, a 5, 10, 20-acre parcel that's threatened, it can be protected, and if it's if it's limited to, uh, you know, non-motorized foot traffic, that can really be a mecca for so many people. It can re- fit 20 acres is a big piece of property when you have to travel it on foot. And I would like to see us look for more opportunities to protect those local parcels where people can really have the encounters with everyday wildness that I think is so valuable to our health and, you know, physical, mental, spiritual well-being. And um, without further ado, would you be able to do one more reading for us tonight from from your book, Looking for Hickories? Again, in the studio, this is uh, Tom Springer. Um, And this book, Looking for Hickories, was um, a 2009 Michigan notable book. And then this... uh, this this essay is entitled Trees for Sale. There's quote marks around trees, which I can't make on the radio. But um, this comes from my involvement just as a, as a layperson with my local conservation district. And these are located across the state. And I think they've been known in the past for helping farmers do things like plant fence rows and uh, buffer strips to, you know, to filter nutrients from running into waterways. But as more and more people move out in the country with smaller parcels, they're really doing more small-scale conservation things. And one of the most popular things that they have is is, is a yearly tree sale in the spring. You'll go to your your, your local, uh, usually it's somewhere in the county where there's a maybe a uh, a park or something that will set up and they'll and they'll sell trees. But as I explain in this uh, essay, uh, the word trees is uh, sort of uh, not exactly what people take it to be, and. Uh, Part of what makes a tree sale so heartening is that when you think about it, we don't really sell trees. A scraggly, leafless brown object whose diameter barely exceeds that of a pencil cannot in good conscience be called a tree, because what we're selling is actually tree seedlings. Not yet. No, what we actually sell is hope, the promise of forests and shade trees yet to come. And along with mulch and water, it takes a good measure of human imagination to help them survive. At a tree sale a few years ago, I was at the counter when a perky middle-aged woman came in. She'd ordered from our catalog, so her pre-packed bundle was one of many that waited in long rows in the floor. Evidently, this was her first tree sale. So, should I pull up the door out to the door out back, she chirped. I borrowed a pickup truck with a trailer, and I brought a friend along to help load them up. She was here to get 25 redbud trees. Redbuds are, are notable for their purple-pink blossoms and rarely exceed 20 feet in height. They're native to the eastern deciduous forest, but do well as a yard tree, preferably in light shade. Twenty-five such trees, as envisioned in the mind's eye, would certainly occupy a lot of space. But the twenty-five redbud seedlings I brought her, they could have fit neatly into a child's hand. That's it, she cried. Those are my trees? Oh, my. She let her friend carry the trees as they walked sheepishly back to her empty three-quarter ton pickup truck the one with an empty flatbed trailer attached. They were nonetheless her redbud trees, encoded with all the genetic instructions needed to someday become the ornamental beauties of her dreams. And for the time being, they had the added virtue of extreme portability, 
with a little shove, they could probably even fit under the front seat. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Tom Springer, and that was a reading from his book called Looking for Hickories. Tom Springer, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to Impact Exposure. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.